name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here. And if, if you've got your Bibles, go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John is a letter towards the end of your New Testament. And um, we'll be in chapter 2 this morning. We've been looking at um, John's, th- this letter that John is writing. And to tell you a little bit about it. So John is, is an older man at this time. He's probably in his 80s. And he's the last living apostle, the last living disciple of Jesus um, at this time. And he's seen all of his friends, his fellow disciples, they have been martyred uh, because of their faith in Jesus, because of their life for Jesus. And he is likely over in Asia Minor. Paul has been um, executed. Uh, Peter has been executed by the emperor. Uh, John is writing to this church, these churches that have been planted by Paul and Peter and, and the disciples. And, and it's a second generation, second and third generation of Christianity that's emerging. And Paul's kind of, or John's this sort of last voice of that first generation, the last eyewitness of Jesus, the last one that, that walked with him and ate with him and touched him, God made flesh. And so he's writing to these believers because Christianity's been around long enough now that there are um, some errant versions of Christianity beginning to emerge. There, There are some different gospels that are being taught. And so so John, he's, he's, a, he's a father, he's a grandfather here, and he's writing to people that he loves, and he wants them to know the truth about Jesus. Jesus really did live. God really came out of eternity into history and took on flesh and was born of Mary and, and lived a life, and we walked around with him for three years. We saw things that we, we wrote some of them down, some of them we couldn't even find words to explain. And that this Jesus, who's the eternal Son of God, the Word made flesh, eternal life in the flesh, took all our sin and died for us. And it's real. It's, a, it's true. And, and you know it to be true because you've believed it by faith. And he wants them to know that. And he wants them to be protected from the error that's, that's creeping into the church. And he also wants them to be protected from the error that says you can believe Jesus and it have no effect on your life. It can have no effect on your heart. See, he wants them to know, listen, Christianity is this transformation of the mind. You believe a truth by faith. You believe in Jesus by faith. It's also a transformation of the heart. You you, you know this truth, this truth, this truth of God's love for you in Jesus begins to be a love that is expressed to those around you. And it is a transformation of your life. That not only have you received the gift of salvation, you have received the gift of desire to do God's will. And he's speaking into this tension. A tension that says, listen, the gospel of Jesus is going to radically and miraculously change your destiny and the reality. It requires nothing of you. You receive it by faith. And the gospel of Jesus radically and miraculously changes your day-to-day life, and it demands everything from us. 
our life, our soul, our all, as the hymn says. Well, John's not the first to speak into this tension. Paul addresses it in the letter to the Philippians in the first chapter. He says this, hey, Philippians, I'm sure of this thing. I'm sure that he, meaning God, that began a good work in you will bring it to, the complete, bring it to completion at the day of, of Christ Jesus. God began something in you, and here's what I'm sure of. He began it in you. He's going to bring it to completion. He goes on in chapter 2. He says, now... I want you to know this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So work out this thing in you that God is doing. Because not only when you were saved was your eternal destiny changed when you were saved, your day-to-day life is being transformed because God not only gave you the gift of salvation, he gave you the gift of desire for his will. He gave you this gift, this desire, this, this now um, uh, inner uh, compulsion, uh, disposition to want to be synced up and aligned with the things of God. In the third chapter of Philippians, he says, Listen, so everything in my life I've done in my own strength and I've gained in my own strength, I count it as loss. And I count it as loss because of the amazing and extravagant value, the surpassing worth of, of, of Christ Jesus my Lord. And it means I've been found in him because of what he did, not because of what I did. And because of that, by every means possible. I want more and more of him. I want to know him more and more. I want that relationship to grow more and more. I want that intimacy to grow more and more. And then he says, listen, I haven't already obtained that. I'm not already perfect, but I press on because Christ Jesus has made me his own because he's made me his own. I want to know him more. And to know him more means to lean into the ways he's given me desires to be synced up with him. Because when you've received the gift of salvation by grace through faith, this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. You've also received the desire to do God's will along with that gift of salvation. And so John's speaking into that. And he wants you to know, listen, you've got a transformed mind, which means you're heart will be transformed, which means your life will be transformed. And a transformed mind and a transformed heart and a, and a transformed life are these three things that John continues to, to weave together like this tapestry in this, leather, in this letter. And he does it because John was writing to churches and to believers who were likely struggling with discouragement they were struggling with doubt, whether it was because of their own sinfulness or because of the presence of the false teachers that were in their midst or, or both. And so we're going to see three things. First uh, John chapter 2, we'll look at 11 verses, and we're going to see three things. The first is I want you to see the love 
of God. He's going to explain to us the love of God in those first two, chapter, first two verses. In the next few verses, he's going to say, this is how the love of God is experienced. It's experienced in your union with Christ. And then he's going to say, once you've experienced it now, here's how the love of God expresses itself. This is how it overflows out of your life. Love flows from God to the believer and then back to God as the believer loves others. That's what he's going to say. So look with me. 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 11 verses and then we'll, we'll, we'll um, walk through those. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. And whoever loves his brother and abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Well, that's the, the word of the Lord. If you, if you notice right there in the beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, he begins by, by, by saying, my little children, which tells us what his, what his tone is. It's, it's a gentle, affectionate tone, like a, like a father, or really in John's case, a grandfather, writing to his grandchildren. He wants them to know his affection. He loves them. And he's protective of them in light of the threat that's against them. And not only that, this is what he wants for them. He wants joy for them. He's already said it in chapter 1, verse 4. I'm writing this so that our joy is complete, that you'd know fellowship and I'd know fellowship and we'd know fellowship with the fellowship of the Godhead and that we would know the joy that comes with that. And he says in in chapter 2, and I'm also writing this so that you don't sin, which is totally related to joy. At the end of chapter 2, he'll say, I'm writing this so that you'll know that the truth you believed is really true. And at the end of chapter 5, he's going to say, I'm writing this so that you'll be assured that you'll know that you have eternal life. I want you to have joy, which means that I don't want you to sin, which means I want you to know the truth you have is true, and I want you to know and be assured that you have eternal life. Listen, this is not a... A father or grandfather who's angry or admonishing or disciplining his children. You know, he's not trying to interrogate siblings and find out who, who tracked mud in on the carpet. He loves them. He said, I'm writing this 
so that you may not sin. Which we know he means, he's not saying I'm writing this so that you'll be perfect or I'm writing this so that you'll be sinless. He doesn't have that in mind because of all that he said before. He said, listen, if you say you don't have sin, here's what I can tell you about yourself. You're a liar. You have sin. You were born in sin. You continue to sin. And the remedy to that sin is confession. It's to say the same thing that God says about your sin. And you say it to him. And you say it to him every day. I confess my sin. And you trust that he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. And what John means by by sin here is not that you would be sinless, not that you would be perfect, but listen, I, I, I don't want you to sin because sin, it, it's a big deal. It threatens our fellowship with God. It threatens our fellowship with each other, and sin's a bigger deal than we even know. John, or Paul will say in Romans 14, listen, here's, here's what sin is. Sin isn't just the bad things you do, and sin isn't just the things you know you're supposed to do and you don't do. That's a very general way to say it. Here's, here's how so encompassing sin is and threatening sin is in your life, that anything you do apart from faith, that's sin. It permeates everything about you. And it's a big deal. And it is a threat to you because it threatens your fellowship with God. It threatens you knowing the joy that God means for you to know by being in fellowship with him. He wants you to know his love poured out on you. But the sin in your life blocks that. Sin robs us of the joy that God desires for us to experience, and it also makes us vulnerable to false teaching around us and crazy ideas. And and sin also has this way of turning you inward, has this way of causing you to focus on yourself. You begin to think of when you're managing sin in your life, instead of confessing it and laying it before God and seeing that fellowship restored, when you begin to manage sin in your life, you begin to think of the Christian life in terms of the good you do versus the bad you do. You try to, you know, score points and keep track, but most often what you find is your experience is that sin's always scoring points against you. You always end up in the loser's column. And the surest way to to rob yourself of joy is to begin to keep track. And the surest way to taint your joy with self-righteousness is to keep scoring, to keep track. And and it's like this. You you begin the day, you go, okay, I'm going to do these five things for God, and I'm not going to do these seven things I did yesterday that I know I'm not supposed to do, and I'm not going to do them today. And you get to the end of the day, and you either checked all the boxes and said, man, I did those five things, and I didn't do those seven things. Look at me. I win. You pour, you know, you get a bucket and pour Gatorade on yourself and you, you feel really good about what you did. But see, you missed it. That wasn't the whole point of it at all. Or worse, you get to the end of the day and you know what? The five things you weren't going to do, you actually did those things plus the seven things you said you weren't going to do that you did yesterday. And then you wallow in the shame and the guilt of that and think, man, God doesn't ever want to have anything to do with me. That's how sin robs you of the joy God means for you to have. You see, John is is this loving grandfather who's writing to people that he loves and that are believers and he wants them to be secure. And so he doesn't begin when he says, listen, I don't want you to sin. 
And then he doesn't go directly to, now, let me tell you how not to sin. Let me give you a list of things not to do, and then here's the things that, that you do, and if you'll do all those things, and you won't be sinning. He's not what he says. He says, I don't want you to sin, and I'm going to tell you where I'm going to start. I'm not starting with you. I'm going to start with Jesus. I want you to know. I want you to be so convinced that God has poured his love out onto you that you're reminded of this all the time because that's transformative. He immediately goes to the presence of God in our life because of the work of his son, Jesus, securing that presence. He's not appealing to our behavior. He appeals to the security of our relationship with God because of Jesus. I don't want you to sin, but if you do, and you will, three things you need to know about Jesus. One, he is your advocate with the Father. Two, he is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And three, he is the propitiation for our sins. There in verse 1, when he says he's the advocate with the Father, it's a word paraclete. It, Jesus here, it's the only time it's used of Jesus, means a helper or a, an advocate or one that, that, that speaks on behalf of another. Four times John will use that word to talk about the Holy Spirit. Here he's saying, listen, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, the eternal life, who was with the Father, is our advocate with the Father. He speaks on behalf of sinners. He personally paid the price for your sins, and he has cleansed us from those sins. He's the advocate who speaks in response to the accuser. You have an accuser that will stand all day long and say, hey, listen, I don't know what you think about yourself, but, but you're a sinner. You're a dirty, filthy, rotten sinner. The truth is, the accuser is usually right about us. There's this picture in Zechariah chapter 3, and it's, it's a picture that's very much like this. The accuser comes, Zechariah is the prophet. He's standing there, not only for himself, but for the nation of Israel. And the accuser says, look how filthy he is. He's wearing filthy rags. It is a filthy people. And this picture is, is that Jesus, the angel of the Lord, shows up silences the accuser, rebukes him, tells him to stay silent. And he has his angels take the filthy rags off and put on the robes of righteousness. And he stands there as the advocate for that one. In Job, it's this great book of suffering, what Job comes to realize about himself, that even though he's blameless, even though he's righteous, even though he's a servant of God, he discovers that, that even his blamelessness and righteousness isn't enough to stand before God, that God, is, God has a righteousness and a perfection and a beauty that's, that's wholly different category than, than, than just the, the good um, uh, of Job's life. And, and, and what he comes to realize, and he'll say it in four different places, but he, he talks about it this way in Job chapter 9. He says, listen, I, I know that to stand before God, someone else has to stand there for me. Someone who can put their hand on God and hand on man. I need someone to mediate for me. I need an advocate. I can't stand before God alone. Someone has to come and bridge the gap. That's why it's so important that as we believe in Jesus... We're believing in, 
in God becoming flesh, the incarnation, one who can stand with his hand on God and his hand on us. And he can stand there, John says, because he's the righteous. He's pure. His testimony is pure. He's perfect. He's the only one who can stand in our place. And he is not only that, he's the propitiation. He's the, he's the one that he's, he took all of our sin. What John says. That Jesus, the Son of God made man, was nailed to a cross and took all of your sin. And then, he, all the wrath of God towards sin was poured out on him. He took your place. In fact, this word propitiation, it's only used a couple of times in the New Testament. John uses it again in chapter 4, and he uses it this way. God says, if you want to know what love is, I made it visible. I took my love and I manifested it, which means I took my love and I demonstrated it. I made it visible. And where I made it visible is in the propitiation. If you want to know what my love is, God says, if you want to know about my love, you look at the cross of Jesus. Jesus nailed there, having taken all your sin and enduring all my wrath. That's love. And at the end of the day, what that means is that when you sin, Jesus is your advocate, but he's not an advocate that, that, that's there begging God for mercy on your behalf. Like, like God, look, I know, I, I mean, I know, look, Father, I know they sinned. I, I, know, I know we did. But he's doing his best, and he's trying really hard, and he's sorry about it, and he confessed it. Just give him another chance. Or, or saying, you know, I know this, this woman, I know I've seen, she's, she's made so much progress, and she's in a really tough season. Father, just, just stay your hand. Just don't condemn her now. Just give her a little more chance. I know she's going to make it. That's not what Jesus is doing as an advocate before the Father. He stands before the Father. He is not begging for your mercy. He is reminding of the Father that justice has already been satisfied. So that when you come in your sin and your filth and you confess it and you say what God says about it, here's what Jesus says. All that sin, I took to myself and I died with it. And all your wrath that that sin deserves, I endured it. And since I paid for the sin and I endured the wrath, justice has been satisfied. And Father, what they receive from you is your love and your mercy and your grace. That's what it means that he's an advocate. Everything you are, he took on to himself. And so when he says, listen, I don't want you to sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate who's perfectly righteous, who was your propitiation. 
You've received the gift of salvation by your faith in what Jesus has done for you. You don't accomplish that. He did it all, and you're saved. Then he sends his spirit to dwell in us, which means we've also been given the gift of desires to do his will, to have our life sync up with him because we're in the process of of having been saved. Now we're being transformed. We're becoming more like the God who saved us. And and we find in Romans 8, chapter 1, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And then he ends by saying, and not only that, nothing can separate, separate you from his love. You're his. And now you become like him. So in verse 3, who... God's love has been poured out on you. How you experience God's love is your union with Christ. Look at it. He says, says, and by this we know that we've come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar because the truth isn't in him. But whoever keeps his commandments, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, walks in the same way that he walked. We come to know him, and we know that we know him. Not by human speculation, not by intellectual investigation. It comes to us as a result of revelation. God has revealed himself. He has also acted upon us. Isaiah 59, 9 says righteousness comes and overtakes us. Jeremiah 31, describing the new covenant, God says, they all know me. And I'm going to forgive their sin, and I'm going to put my law on their hearts, and I'm going to cause them to walk in my ways, and knowing God is being in covenant with them. John wants you to know that you know him. You know that you know him when you realize the desires you have are synced with God's. You've been given the desire to do his will. Now, doing his will doesn't save you. He didn't give you the desire to do his will so that you could save yourself or that by doing enough commandments or by keeping the law or by doing enough right, you earn your way with him. It is the byproduct. You are saved by grace through faith. Now you are given a desire. You are being transformed. And the reason he does that is he does it so that once we've been saved, we grow now in our relationship, in our intimacy with who God is. We grow in our intimacy and relationship with God as we become synced up with the desires he has put in our heart. We become like him. We grow towards him. See, John's saying this because of what he realizes is it's possible for people to make claims about God, and yet they don't really know God. That that they have this intellectual awareness of God, that somehow God can be known by a logical thought, that, that if you're bright enough, you can come to the logical conclusion of who God is, and somehow that's knowing God, but that's not knowing God. Or he would say, knowing God, you know, so the, some would say, it's this mystical experience. You just have to get outside of yourself, 
Because your, your flesh is bad, material's bad. The only thing that matters is, is your mind and what's in you and spiritual. So you transcend yourself. You, you meditate. You empty yourself so that you become one with the ethereal out there and that that's knowing God. But the truth is none of those are knowing God. Knowing God is knowing rightly who Jesus is and trusting him for what he has done. See, the thing that the Gnostics were missing in their intellectual pursuit or their mystical pursuit is they were coming along and saying this, you can know God, and knowing God is separate from a moral life or a moral transformation or a moral consequence, that it's possible to know God and live any way you want to live. And John says, no, no, no. When you come to know God, you want to live the way that God loves. You want, your, your desires have been changed. And so what John's saying is, listen, if, they, if they're saying that, but not living in a way that their life is being transformed or synced up with the desires of God, here's what they, they may know about God, they may know there's a God, they may intellectually assent to that, but they don't know the love of God. They don't know what it is that God poured out his love on them. They may know true things to say about God, but they don't know the one who is the truth. Because the truth transforms us. It redeems us. A guy named Rakin Wilborn wrote a book called Union with Christ. And he talks about, he gives this story, he tells it, he, he, it's, a, it's an imagine this kind of story. This is what he said. Most of us have wondered at one time or another if we were switched at birth. Are those really my parents? Now, now imagine that your parents are mean and critical and have always been a dis, you, um, and you have always been a disappointment to them and they to you. But then one day you find a dusty trunk in the attic and you quietly pick the lock and open the trunk and discover papers that prove you had in fact been abducted as a baby. And these aren't your parents after all. They're really criminals. And then you discover that your real mom was a painter at the Sorbonne in Paris and that your real dad was a Nobel Prize winning scientist and a professional baseball player. And you say to yourself, of course, this explains everything. I'm extraordinary. I knew it all along. It says, you also read that they're fabulously wealthy and have a lavish inheritance waiting for you. It's a fantastic story. Such a discovery, he says, would cause you to reinterpret everything about your life, where you came from, your true identity, your capacities, your capabilities, the resources available to you, your future, your destiny. And after that day, your life would never be the same. You come down from the attic with new eyes for everything and everyone. Your whole life feels new. It's changed. It's invigorated. But here's the thing. It's always been true. It was the truth underlying your life before you even discovered it. It was rooted in history. You had a DNA to prove it. It was true while it was hidden from your sight, but it didn't change your life until your eyes were opened to it. You see, union with Christ, our union with Christ, being in Him, gives you a new identity. God called you to a new life. Your life is now rooted with Christ's life and death and resurrection. 
You once were lost, but now you are found. You have this wonderful new knowledge of who you are and where you came from. And as you walk back into life, you wrestle with, okay, what does this mean? And from this point on, nothing is as it was. See, the Bible, it uses these two illustrations. This is what it means. It uses the illustration of marriage. It uses the illustration of adoption. Both of those are legal, legal things that take place. You, to be married, a legal ceremony takes place. You legally become married to someone else. You, you legally become attached to somebody else. In adoption, you legally become the child of someone else. There is a legal aspect to it, but it is not only legal. It is also relational. I remember when Leslie and I got married almost 25 years ago, just a few days. We, we got married. We went through the ceremony. We went to the reception afterwards. We shook everybody's hand. I remember the end of the day, we were, we were tired. We were exhausted. We were sitting in the airport. And I remember having this thought. I am married. Everything has changed. And you know what? I also had the thought, I don't feel any different. I know I'm not the same. I don't feel any different. Well, listen, that, that feeling different, 25 years of that legal reality taking hold relationally. You see, now every day my will becomes in sync. I, I, I desire to be in sync with. I desire to know Leslie relationally more and intimately. I, I desire for that relationship to grow. But it cannot grow if I at that legal moment said, listen, I'm married. It's a done deal. It's legal. Now I'm going to go on and continue to live my life as I always have. eat blackberry cobbler and drink big red and I don't care what anybody says no my life began to adjust I began to find out what she wanted because I loved her and I wanted to grow and, and our relationship has grown as, as, and it's been transforming and that's what God says about our relationship. Listen, if I said, listen, well, I'm married to Leslie. And, I mean, there's no evidence of it in my life, and you probably couldn't tell, and um, that comes as a big shock to you because of how I live. You would say, I, listen, I don't know what you call marriage, but that's not marriage. That's what John's saying. Well, let me wrap this up because I'm, I'm over my allotted time. Too many believers have come to a saving faith in Jesus but because of the sin and the rebellion that you continue to hang on in your life you have not grown in your fellowship with him. And so you find yourself having a lot of doubts. I wonder if I ever really knew God. You, you find yourself doubting assurance. I wonder if I have a 
eternal life. You find yourself not experiencing the joy that fellowship with God is meant to be experienced because you have not grown. You, you have not… Listen, this is how it works. It, it, Christianity is not this motorboat. You jump in and you make your way around. That's not, that's not how it is. It's this, the image is like a sailboat. You're in there. You have to raise the sail. You have to catch the wind. The wind has got spirit in your life, this, this truth and, and, and this, this um, working out with fear and trembling what God has working in you. You're wanting to know who God is and then responding to who God is in your daily life. And I think too many believers, you, you walk around and say, well, I'm saved by grace. And, and the remedy for sin is confession. And, and listen, that won't last very long. You won't have any assurance. You won't have grown in your intimacy and relationship with God. The joy that you're meant to have, you won't have. God means for you to look more and more and more like His Son, Jesus. He goes on and says, verse 7 and on, I'm giving you a, no new command, I'm giving you an old command. The old command is what Jesus says in John 13, 34, a new command I give you, that you love one another just as I loved you and you also love one another. And so John said, it's not a new command, but but at the same time, it is a new command because it was a new command when Jesus gave it. But it really wasn't a new command. It was, a, it was an old command poured through the new life of Jesus in the believer. So Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Will you love God and love one another? And, and then what he says is in verse 7, verse 8, he says, not only, listen, this is true, this is the command, this is the impulses, these are the desires that the Holy Spirit is putting in you. This is the direction of your life. This is what you will find um, resonating in you, echoing in you. And he says this, because he says, I know it is true in him, and it is true in you. It means it's truly expressed. John believes this to be true about them. They are beloved. Because what God's done in them by showing his love and pouring it out in their life is meant to be experienced and then expressed to those around them. The darkness is passing away. The true light is all already shining. These are two simultaneous events in the world and in the believer. It's this already and not yet. The era of darkness is on the way out. Darkness is moving towards extinction. Why are you still playing around in the darkness? Its days are numbered. The era of light is growing and progressing and it can't be stopped to the degree that it will come to such fulfillment that light will be all that there is. There will be no more darkness. And Revelation says, in fact, there will be no more darkness and no need for any artificial light. You won't need the sun. You won't need the moon anymore because God himself is going to be the light. And the kingdom of light has come and is coming. The image of God is being restored in you, in us as the church. 
and fellowship with one another means that we experience this joy of knowing God more deeply and more intimately and that we help each other fight for our faith. The faith that God loves us and Jesus covers us. And that we're no longer identified by our sins. We're identified by the one who saved us. Well, some of you might be hearing you think, well, this is really great. I feel kind of convicted, though. You know, as I look at my life, there's more sin than there is fruit. There's more doubt than there is joy. I'm more bored with the Christian life than I am invigorated by it. Well, the, the first thing is, as he says, if you, if you know him, you'll obey his commands. One of the things to know is, do you know what it is that God desires in your life? Do you know what it is that he loves you and that he wants you to love others? Do you know what it is that he is holy and he desires in your life holiness? Are you able to see in your life the things that do not sync up with the holiness of God? And do you find yourself knowing that you're out of sync there? John would say, that's a great place to start. Now, here's what you do. What you do about your sin is you confess it. You say the same, same things that God says about the sin in your life, trusting that he forgives that sin. He cleanses you from unrighteousness. And you ask God, would you kindle the desire? Would you stir up in me the desire to pursue your holiness? That joy is found in the intimacy that comes by pursuing the will of the God that saved you. Do you love your brothers and your sisters, or, or do you find yourself bitter and angry and all stirred up about what they're doing and what you can't forgive. And John would say, those are places that you have to let go and forgive as you have been forgiven. That, that what you're doing is you're, you're walking in a darkness and you can't see where it is that you're even going. So you've got to let that go and you've got to forgive. Third test for you, in fact, is where John begins the gospel. So he begins the letter. Have you come to terms with who Jesus is? Do you believe that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became flesh? stepped out of eternity into history 
took on flesh so that he could take on your sin and that your sin really was transferred to him and that he died for that sin under the condemnation of the wrath of God in your place. And then he was raised to new life. And that by trusting him for your sin, you're clothed in his righteousness. He's the righteous. Now you begin to look like him. You're in him. He clothes you. When God sees you, when God hears you, you're reconciled to him, and you are the recipient of his love and his grace and his mercy. Do you believe that about how, who Jesus is? That he has done it all. If this morning you have a truth problem about who Jesus is, you can settle that right now. You can turn the eyes of your heart to the God who created you and say, I believe that you sent your son to make a way for me to know you. If it's a problem of a, your conscience bothering you this morning because you know your life is out of sync with the holiness of God, this morning, you can take these moments we're going to have, and you can confess that sin. You can say the same thing that God says about your sin, knowing that that sin was laid on his son and that he died with it. Trust him for that. You don't have to hide it anymore. You don't have to run from it. You don't have to make excuses. Step into the light. And this morning, you bitter, you indifferent, you mad at somebody around you? you know? A heart that is loveless blocks your fellowship and intimacy with God. A heart that's loveless blocks the assurance that God wants you to have. Listen, I know what day and age we live in. We have a world around us that is filled with hostility and hate, conflict for one another. If you've got to turn off the news so that you can hear your God do that, a heart growing in bitterness, you're finding yourself growing away from the intimacy God means for you to have. You will not find joy in, a, in an election that is won. You will find joy in knowing the one that has saved you. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. F Father, I pray you would do what only you can do. You would take the truth of these words written by your servant John and have them transcend this history because that's no obstacle for you. Father, would you use them to, to comfort us where we need to be comforted, to convict us where we need to be convicted so that, Father, this morning we'd step out of the darknesses that we're 
playing in and into your light and know fellowship and intimacy with you and know the joy that you have for us. And then, Father, that'd be contagious to the people that we are around. And more and more we would know what it is to walk with you. Father, we ask this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.